Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us today from wherever you are. Whether you attend one of our Denver locations or listen online, our hope is to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. And if you'd like to financially support our community and beyond as we set aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, Denver Community Church, this is Dan Cummings, worship and tech pastor here at DCC. And I want to make all of our podcast listeners aware of an interesting opportunity. As we all know, the past two years of the pandemic have caused almost all of us to re-examine our relationship to God, to our faith communities, and to church as a whole. For some, it may have been a time of reconnection to the divine, while for others, it was a season of disorientation and questions. As we move into this next season together, we want to get a clear picture of where all of the subgroups within our community fall on this spectrum so we can meet you there and engage in it together. This includes those who engage with DCC primarily through this podcast. If that's you and you're willing to share a bit with us, please email John Gettings at jgettings at denverchurch.org with the subject line podcast listener. That's J-G-E-T-T-I-N-G-S at denverchurch.org. Uh, with the subject line podcast listener. We look forward to hearing from you. And now back to the teaching podcast. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. If you'd like to follow along with today's reading, uh, we're going to begin in Luke chapter 24. As you find your place there, let's pray, and then we'll jump into our time of teaching. God, we come together this morning confident you are in our midst because you are a living God. And so as we gather together this morning to celebrate resurrection, we ask that you would invite us to a deeper understanding of ourself, of our world, and of how you are constantly inviting us to greater healing and wholeness so that we might be you in our world. We pray these things together in the strong name of the living Jesus. And everybody said, amen. All right, Luke 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb of Jesus. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered it, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. 
Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Kind of a bummer of a story, isn't it? I mean, like, we're like, yeah, the resurrection. And it says that the apostles, the disciples, the word sounded like nonsense. The word nonsense there, by the way, comes out of the theater. It talks about comedy. And it gives the depiction of the person who's saying it is drunk or incompetent. And the people are laughing at them because of their incompetence. This is the picture. It's not complimentary. It it, it literally means that they hear their words as empty and void of meaning. This is the initial reaction of the disciples to the news of the resurrection. But then, like, you hear that, and it's like, oh, but Peter, Peter gets up and runs away. Peter, my man. And then he sees the empty tomb and kind of walks away, like, mumbling to himself with his head down, not really sure what's going on. The story continues, by the way. Luke tells us that there's two individuals who are leaving Jerusalem and they're walking to a town called Emmaus and Jesus comes up alongside of them and begins to have a conversation with them, but they don't recognize him. They finally get to where they're gonna stay for the evening and they invite Jesus in for a meal and it's when he breaks bread in front of them that their eyes are open and they recognize him, but then he disappears. So they go back to Jerusalem and find the disciples. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 36 of Luke chapter 24. It says, while they, the two who were on the road with Jesus, were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. I mean, the story just keeps getting more bizarre. Jesus shows up. They think he's a ghost. And he's like, no, look, nail marks, wound in the side. And they still don't believe it. And then Jesus is like, you got anything to eat? Like, what, you just like come home from college? It's like resurrection work up an appetite or something. And so then, then they have the detail. And they gave him some broiled fish. And he took it. And he ate it. You're like, this is an interesting story, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You would think out of sheer pride, one of the disciples would at this point be like, I totally saw this coming. I I knew it. I was aware. I expected it the whole time. Luke's story is honest, if nothing else. But on this day that we typically associate with celebration, it really seems to reflect more confusion and doubt and consternation and disbelief. And I hate to tell you this, but the other gospels actually don't seem to make it any better. Matthew, in his gospel, tells us that the women went to the tomb very early in the morning on the first day of the week. They saw the tomb empty, and then they, ran, they were confused. And then the angels said to them, go to Galilee, which is the northern region of Israel, and Jesus will meet you there and tell the disciples to go. And so they go and tell the disciples, and they make their way from Jerusalem to Galilee. And when they are there, Matthew tells us this. 
Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Some doubted? I mean, this is honest reporting, but honestly, what does a guy have to do to make people believe that he's the son of God? Some doubted. Mark, in his gospel, it's much more abbreviated, and he actually comes to kind of a screeching halt at the end of his story about the resurrection. Once again, the women go to the tomb very early in the morning on the first day of the week. They encounter an angel there, and the angel says to them, go and tell the disciples what has happened. Now, throughout the entire book of Mark, Jesus is telling people, don't tell people who I am. Don't tell, don't tell, don't tell. You get to the end, and finally, it's go and tell. And the way Mark finishes his gospel is this way. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This just feels like, are you you kidding me? Someone actually felt like, are you kidding me, at some point, because scholars agree that at some point later, someone came along and added to the end of Mark's gospel, because apparently they just couldn't stand for it to end this way. But even there, it says that those who saw the resurrected Jesus told the disciples two different times, and on both occasions, the disciples still did not believe. But we still have John's gospel. And I hate to tell you this, it doesn't get any better. John tells us that Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb very early in the morning on the first day of the week. She encounters an empty tomb. She goes back and tells the disciples, and John the disciple and Peter the disciple run to the tomb, and they see the tomb empty, and this is their response. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. They leave the tomb, but Mary stands there by herself weeping, and then she hears someone speak to her, and she turns around, and she sees Jesus but doesn't recognize him. Eventually, she recognizes him, and she screams out, my rabbi, my teacher. And so then she's on her way to tell the disciples, and she tells them, and then it says, later that day, later that evening... All the disciples are together. They're in a room where the windows and doors are locked because they're afraid of the Roman authorities. And Jesus appears in their midst and shows them his wounds and his hands and his side. And they believe. Finally, they believe. But one disciple is missing, Thomas. And so the disciples get together and they're like, hey, Thomas, you'll never guess what happened. And this is what Thomas says to them. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. Don't we all have a friend like Thomas? Just the contrarian. No matter what you say, they're going to disagree with you. Thomas is like the original picks or it didn't happen, bro, kind of guy. Like, come on, he's always wanting you to prove what he's talking about. This is the way the Gospels introduce the resurrection, by telling us that they don't believe, that they didn't expect it. Scholar Nancy Clasby points out that the reason for this is the Gospel writers are reinforcing over and over the idea of how difficult it was to believe that someone would raise from the dead and the fact that none of the disciples expected the resurrection. Now, at this point, traditionally, in Easter sermons, 
For the last, I don't know, a few centuries, pastors would point this out, and then they would speak about the disciples in such a way as to suggest that if we, the pastors, were simply there, we could have explained the entire thing to them. That we, of course, would have known the story and how it ended. I mean, we almost like visualize ourselves like, oh, poor, silly disciples, so slow of faith and so slow to get it, and we're explaining to them the whole thing. Which raises the questions, or the question, why do pastors do this year after year after year? Because all of you sit there and nod right along like, yeah, totally. We would have been there too. We would have been right with you. We would have been there expecting it. When Jesus showed up, we would have been like, I bet you're hungry. Got some broiled fish. (laughs) No. While we might like to imagine that that would be the case, we forget that we view this story across 2,000 years and we have the entire story in our hands. And why we might like to think that we would have believed it or that we expected it. Maybe this morning what we ought to do is just pause for a moment and ask ourselves the question, do we actually believe that rising from the dead is possible? Do we expect the resurrection. Notice I didn't say, would we have expected? I said, do we expect? And I say that because I'm not talking about what happened 2,000 years ago on that sacred morning. I'm talking about what's happening right here, right now. Because the reality is that Jesus rose from the dead, was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago, and that happened but resurrection is still happening because the resurrection points to something that is woven into you and into me and into the very fabric of the universe. And what the resurrection points to is transformation, total and complete transformation, not just for Jesus, but for all of us and for everything. I mean, this is why no one recognized Jesus There's a story in John's gospel about a guy named Lazarus. Lazarus died. He was wrapped up and had spices put on him, was put into a tomb, and Jesus shows up a few days later, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus gets up and comes out of the tomb. But Lazarus came back in the same body, to the same place, to the same family, to the same life. That's resuscitation. That's not resurrection. It's interesting that no one can really describe Jesus. If you even give a casual reading to all of the resurrection accounts, no one says, well, he looked like, or this was happening. They just talk about what's going on. Nobody seems to recognize him. And at some point, their eyes are open, like, oh my goodness, I didn't see it. But now I totally see it. We're told that he can appear and that he can also disappear that he apparently can just show up in rooms where the doors and the windows are locked. That even though he has like this ghost-like quality about him, he also gets hungry and he can eat. And when he eats, he does so and people see him. What we know is that something about this resurrection business involves transformation that's almost central to it. Joseph Campbell, in talking about resurrection, says resurrection is casting off the old life and moving into the new life 
because resurrection is about transformation. This is the same thing Paul talks about in his letters to the churches. In his letter to the church in Galatia, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, I've thrown off the old life. It's been killed. It's been killed off. I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. There was something that was old, and it's being replaced by something that is new. This is transformation. Paul says the same thing in his letter to the Roman church in Romans chapter six. He says these words, we were buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, we too may have a new life. For if we have been united with Jesus in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul uses this symbol of baptism, a going under the water as a symbol of death and a rising up again as a symbol of resurrection, new life, transformation. It's actually this symbol that Paul points to that we'll celebrate two weeks from today here in this room. The symbol of baptism. A recognition that resurrection, transformation is still happening. That for many of us, we've experienced a sort of death in our life, and we've also experienced a kind of resurrection, a kind of new life, a kind of transformation. Maybe you're here this morning and you've experienced that, and maybe you need to consider joining us in baptism as a way of saying to others, yes, I still expect the resurrection. I still believe that transformation is possible. I still believe that new life is possible. And not after I die, supposing you can make it past St. Peter in his interview. But like we're talking about, no, life right here, right now. Do we believe that someone being raised from the dead is possible? Do we expect the resurrection? Do we believe that the transformation of ourselves in all things is actually happening? Because the disciples seem to really struggle with it. And I don't believe it's too uncommon that we would struggle with it. And maybe, maybe the reason that the disciples struggle with this on that morning 2,000 years ago was because if resurrection is the transformation of all things, On that morning, what they knew is nothing's really different. I mean, Jesus, he's different, but apparently he's leaving soon. But Rome, Rome is still the global military superpower that's controlling most of the world, and they still have their boot firmly on our neck. We're still slaves in our own land. That hasn't changed. That's not different. I mean, Jesus is different, sure, but you know what? The religious authorities who did this to him and made sure that he was going to be executed, they still have their jobs. They're still making money. They're still in power. You're gonna talk to me about transformation? Maybe that kind of questioning, wondering, maybe that resonates with you here this morning. Like, just as it was on that morning 2,000 years ago, where they knew something happened. They knew something was different. But transformation everywhere, 
I mean, we're gathered here together this morning, and something happened. That's why we're here. And something is a little bit different. I mean, just look at you. I mean, seriously. Look at you. You look so good this morning. I mean, we're talking like tailored sport coats. Few people are rocking ties. You got your, like your brand new, freshly pressed shirt on that you hung up, not in your closet because it would get wrinkled. We hung that on the side of the dresser. We bought a few new outfits. We tried all of them on, asked our friends, what do you think about this one? Floral dresses in the pastel color palette. Are you kidding me? It's like I'm in a Gap commercial from 1987. This is, this is fantastic. You look great. Just showing up the way you have says, yeah, no, something happened. Something's different. And I mean, I know it's not just here and right now. You're all going to go to brunch soon with friends and family. You're going to have bottomless mimosas and delicious ham. I'm kidding. There's no such thing as delicious ham, actually. <laughs> but you're here, and it's different, but you know what's going to happen? You're going to go to bed at some point today, and you're going to wake up tomorrow, and you're going to open up your news feed, and you're going to see that Russia is still committing war crimes and, and, and criminal activity in Ukraine. You're going to look at your news feed, and you're going to see that war is still raging on in the Arabian Peninsula that's causing the suffering and starvation of millions of people in Yemen that there's still a civil war in Ethiopia, that there's still a pandemic, and apparently it's making a comeback, that there's still division running rampant in our country, that inequity persists, that yet another unarmed black man was killed by police. Is anything really different? And then what about our personal lives, our everyday lives? How many of you are here this morning carrying pain and disillusionment and doubt, and struggle, and breakups, and hardships, and anxiety, and depression. You see, when we ask the question, do you really believe that someone can be raised from the dead? Do we really expect resurrection? Maybe when we collide with that question, as the disciples may have done on that sacred morning 2,000 years ago, it points to the fact that we're not alone in those questions. Now, I know that talking about like the real world on a morning like this can be a bit of a disappointment. It's like waking up the morning after you went to Disney World. You're like, I spent $1,200 to wait in line on the surface of the sun. Like, <laughs> but even though it might feel like a bit of a downer to point all of that out, that this is the reality of the world in which we live, I want to say that I don't believe resurrection does that. Because just talking about resurrection is also to talk about death, because you don't have resurrection without a death. And what I know is that the resurrection of Jesus makes no such promises. It doesn't say we're going to avoid all of the pain and the tragedy and the struggle and the realities. If anything, resurrection throws us headlong into it, into the midst of the suffering and the struggle and the doubt and the pain. Resurrection doesn't say, well, Jesus didn't really die and he didn't really suffer. And it also doesn't say that you're not going to suffer and that you're not going to die. 
Resurrection doesn't say that death somehow is temporary or avoidable or imaginable and it's gonna be different. No, death is still going to hurt very, very much. And resurrection moves toward that with all of its grief, with all of its pain and with all of the attending sorrow. Resurrection and transformation don't ignore any of that, but what resurrection does do is it whispers to you and it whispers to me in the same way it whispered to those who found the tomb empty 2,000 years ago, far more can be mended than you know. It stares down the pain that comes our way and it says, yes, and? And it doesn't shy away from any of that. It doesn't pretend it's not real, but it does say to us that that pain and that struggle does not have to have the last word. Years ago, when I started out as a preacher, I'm not going to tell you how many years, just years ago, I was in a really large church. It was the first gig that I had. My mentor invited me to work with him, and I was in a really large church, so large, in fact, that they uh, were, <laughs> the sermons were syndicated to a local television station which makes me a former TV preacher. <laughs> yeah. Now, part of being in a large church in a town that wasn't that big and being on television meant that when you walked around town, people would recognize you. Now, for a minute, I thought that was cool. And then I realized, like, I'm like a few clicks below, like, local news personalities, like Brian Fantana and Frank Vichard. Like, then there's Michael, right? Down at the bottom. And... As much as I wanted to enjoy that, I kid you not, every person who saw me would walk up and be like, hey. I'd be like, hey. Like, I know who you are. They'd be like, yeah, you do. And then they would say, but you look a lot taller on television. <laughs> and I'd say, I'm praying for you. But it was just this awkward thing. And I'll tell you what. I was in my 20s, and it was, honestly, it was very heady and very ego-filling. And then I left that church, and I went and started a new church with a friend, and by all accounts, it was really successful, and that just continued to kind of like puff me up a little bit. And I was quite confident in those days about who I was and what I was doing and everything else. But then what happened is years after that, when I was in this church, a few people decided to purposely start rumors about me. Rumors that were vague enough to where other people would have to fill in the details because you know how it goes with us human beings, right? Where there's no information, there's imagination. And so people started to believe these rumors and latch onto them and it eventually led to, to one morning almost 20 years ago where I was called into a meeting and told, you're not gonna work here anymore. And everything that I had worked so hard to build and all the things that I enjoyed came crashing down in about 30 seconds. And do you think at that point I thought, well, I believe in the resurrection? No, not even a little bit. I was furious. I was wounded. I was terrified. I was disillusioned. I swore I would never, ever go back to church in my life. I had like fantasies and dreams about meeting one of the people that did this to me in a dark alley late at night, and then I would just really give it to them. It turns out, though, that I'm way too chicken to go into a dark alley late at night, so that never happened. But after some time, 
with the help of others who loved me very much and the help of God, I opened myself up to healing. I began the, the really, really difficult work of walking through forgiveness. And it took a long time. More, well more than a year later, I was invited back to a church where I used to preach to preach a sermon again. And initially I was like, no, I'm never going to church again. And their pastor said, we don't think God's done with you. We just, just want, just one sermon. That's how it always starts, right? Just one sip, just one sermon. So I was like, fine. And then he told me what they paid. I'm like, oh yeah, no, God's totally calling me this. Um, <laughs> And so I stood up and preached the sermon and people were leaving like, hey, good to see you again, good to see you again, good to see you again. And then this old woman comes up to me and she walks up and she has like this little smile on her face and she does like the hand on my forearm and the hand on my shoulder and said, that was the best sermon I've ever heard you preach. I was like, all right. And she said, because you've been broken and you're healing and it's beautiful. And in that moment, something within me knew that she was telling the truth. I think that something in me is what I would call our soul, my soul. The soul is the life that God has put in you, that God wants, you to, wants to live in you and through you into the world. And something in me knew the truth of what she was saying. That all of the pain, all of the ugliness, all of the realities that led to really what was a death, loss, wounding, pain, that it did something in me, that resurrection worked on me and raised me from the dead. Now, I'll be honest with you, I would have rather gone through transformation in a much more pleasant way. But one thing I know is this, resurrection isn't, or transformation isn't present, or pleasant, and neither is resurrection. Because it asks us to die so that it can do its work on us. And while on that morning when that woman said that to me after I preached, I believed her, at the same time, nothing was really different. Like the people that did this to me, they never came and apologized. Some of them were close friends. They never reconciled. They never sought forgiveness. The church where I worked that was led by these people who did this to me, they didn't have to close their doors or shut down. They just kept right on moving. I had friendships and relationships with people who chose to believe the rumors, and those relationships never recovered. I was never asked to go back and preach at that church Again, like so many things weren't different. But you know what was different? Me. I was different. And that changed everything. Which, of course, reminds us of caterpillars. <laughs> Am I right? You were all there. You're like, when is he going to get to the caterpillars? Come on. <laughs> By the way, caterpillars are gross. They're just disgusting. I'm sure there's some people out there who are like, I think caterpillars are great. They're so adorable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we call them weirdos. <laughs> caterpillars are great. You know what the first thing a caterpillar does after it's born? It eats its eggshell. That's gross. That'd be like a newborn when it comes out with its gums like starting to gnaw on the umbilical cord. 
Like it's a super rope. Remember super ropes, the three foot long things of licorice you'd get at a high school basketball game? I'm not sure if the consistency between a super rope and an umbilical cord is the same thing. Never mind, I'll just stop there. (laughs) Now that that image is indelibly seared in your mind. They're gross. After they eat the eggshell, caterpillars begin eating 100 times its own body weight every day. And recent research from Florida Atlantic University shows that when food resources get scarce, caterpillars begin headbutting other caterpillars to get the leaves that are left over. The only transformation that happens in the caterpillar's life is that because it eats so much, it grows and it sheds its exoskeleton. But eventually, the caterpillar does meet its end. Because at some point, it crawls up on a branch, hangs upside down, and it spins a cocoon. And scientists long wondered, like, what is it that makes a caterpillar do that? Like, what is it? I mean, is at some point, like, hey, Jeremy, we should probably go. Like, I mean, where? And what they found is, is that there's actually cells within the caterpillar's body, cells that they're born with. And scientists call these cells imaginal discs. And there's very few of them. But what they've shown is that The imaginal discs, these cells, at some point in the caterpillar's life, begin signaling to it, it's time to go. And outwardly, when those cells activate, the the caterpillar gets even more aggressive. And inwardly, the caterpillar's immune system tries to kill these cells. Is this not a great metaphor for us as human beings? A creature that consumes and competes and only transforms at the outer superficial level and resists transformation with everything it has. (laughs) That's like us, isn't it? Well, it's probably hard to hear now that I think about it. But then the caterpillar spins its cocoon. And those imaginal cells that were just a few begin to explode in number, as many as 10,000 times in number, and it actually dissolves the body of the caterpillar totally and completely. And then it's those cells that begin to rebuild all of the things that were once a part of the caterpillar until it becomes a butterfly. Now, what's interesting when you think about butterflies and caterpillars is is the tree where the cocoon hung is the same. The grasses below the tree where the caterpillar hung is the same. The time of year is the same. The ecosystem is the same. Nothing is really different except for the fact that the caterpillar is now a butterfly. And it was the ancient people who first observed this pattern of this caterpillar and butterfly and began to liken it to the transformation that we as humans go through. Later on, Aristotle gave the butterfly the name suke which in classical Greek means soul, the life that God has put in you, that God wants to live through you. This is the transformation. Ecosystem is the same, but they're not crawling around just eating leaves. Now, instead, as butterflies, they're going from flower to flower, and they're actually aiding in pollination and aiding in seeds being planted and in their transformation in a place that's not really different. They bring forth new life. I wonder what if we, what if we like butterflies were those 
who allowed resurrection and transformation to do its work on us so that we could become those who aid in new life being born in our world. I don't know where you are this morning with regard to whether or not you believe something or someone can be raised from the dead or whether or not you expect resurrection. Maybe you're here and you're walking with someone who's in the throes of addiction. Maybe you're here and you're watching a loved one destroy their lives through choices that they are making. Maybe you're here and someone you know or someone you love, or maybe yourself has been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Maybe you're here and it's your first time in church in a while because if you're honest, the faith that was handed to you, the faith that the generation before you handed off to you, you just can't do it anymore. And you're not sure what you believe about God, life, faith, the Bible, Jesus, resurrection, whatever it is. You just don't know. You don't know what you believe about anything. I don't know the disillusionment and the disappointments and the doubts and the pain and the wounds that you carry within you this morning. But wherever you are, I want to ask, do we believe the resurrection is possible? Do we expect transformation? And wherever you are, Maybe as we read that story from the Gospel of Luke this morning, when we read it, you saw yourself running back from the empty tomb with the women to tell the disciples that he is risen. And when it comes to those questions, yes, you expect it. Yes, you believe it. Because like the women, you saw the empty tomb. You saw the risen Jesus. Yes, you believe it. Or maybe this morning you're here, and like some of the disciples You're in the midst of people who are worshiping, but you're doubting. Maybe like Thomas, you're sitting here saying, yeah, unless I see it, I won't believe it. Or maybe you're somewhere between those two places. Maybe you're longing for the resurrection. Maybe you want to believe it's true, but it still feels like Saturday. Things are still, and things are quiet, and the stone is still firmly in place. What I love about the Gospels is that they share honestly about where everybody involved in the resurrection story is. They talk about the belief and they talk about the doubt. They talk about the joy and they talk about the fear. They talk about the amazement and they talk about the the confusion. They talk about the celebration and they talk about the fact that there was disbelief. They report on it honestly, but they actually give very little commentary to it but they include it because they know it's important for us all to find ourselves in that story. And while the gospel writers speak about all of the different responses to the resurrection, they all tell us the same thing in the end. And that is this good news. He is not here. He is risen. Let's pray together. God, in so many ways, this story both invites us toward transformation and it challenges us in how we hold 
and see and view the resurrection. I ask that you would allow us to see the transformation that you are bringing about within us so that we would be those who, even though our world may not be different, would begin to see the world differently, recognizing that that changes everything. As people of the resurrection, would you remind us that we are invited toward this level, toward this depth of transformation? Wherever we are this morning, would you whisper to us far more can be mended than you know. We pray these things together this morning in the name of the resurrected, living, and ascended Jesus the Christ. And all my siblings said, amen.